Hello and welcome to Andraste's Gadfly, and we're here to talk about Dragon Age and philosophy. So if you're new here, I'm a philosopher who's also a Dragon Age fan. I'm Jill Fellows, and joining me today is... I'm Kira Thompson. Also a philosopher and Dragon Age fan. <laughs> that is true. So what we like to do is get together a few times a year and geek out by applying philosophical ideas and theories and arguments to the Dragon Age games. And today, I think we're going to be looking at trust and testimony. So let's start with our first segment, which we like to call first run and headcanon. So I kind of want to ask Kira, when we went through first run, there are a few characters in particular who, let's say, prove themselves to be less than trustworthy. I think that's a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> So let me ask you, Kira, and I think I already know the answer, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. In your first run of Dragon Age 2, did you trust Anders? Yes. Yes, I did, because <laughs> he was my sweetums, and I was romancing him, and I didn't see it coming, <laughs> uh, in, in part because I am generally a very trusting person. And I, I take people at their face value. And when I when I went to start the justice quest where he says, you know, we got to just go find some stuff and, and then I'll um, be able to free myself from justice. And I was like, oh, that's cool. He seems to be finally taking responsibility for that choice and trying to fix that choice. And I was like, sure, that sounds like a good idea. So I I really did take it at face value. And now in hindsight, yeah, because um, I'm I'm just doing uh, another playthrough, and I realize how they wrote the script in such a way that he tells you exactly what's going to happen. Like he says, "Look, if we just find this stuff and put it together the right way, boom, justice and I are free." Like he literally he say says, boom? "Boom!" He literally says, "Boom!" Oh, wow. And when I when I got to that in this past playthrough I was like really he said that <laughs> and it it's sort of like I find that they, they they build this foreshadowing in in a number of ways like when you go to the chantry with him and the uh the grand cleric she comes over and and she says to Anders you look troubled uh child I hope you find a bomb here. Yes. And she means B-A-L-M. Yes. And if you have the um, subtitles on, you can see that that's what it is. But if you're just listening to it, there's so much foreshadowing that yeah. I did not catch. And so, yes, I I really did. You trusted Anders. I, I trusted you wanted Anders. To help him. Um, I trusted that he did want to do what was best for majors, that he wanted to help them and he you know, he was committed to, to the notion of justice, perhaps vengeance. But yeah, I I didn't expect him yeah. to blow up the Chantry. <laughs> yeah, spoiler was... alert. Although I yeah. think the whole podcast is spoiler alert, given that we're talking about yeah. trust and testimony and betrayal. But yeah, so Anders is a mage who has left the... He's escaped the circle number of times, which you learn in Origins. And in Dragon Age 2, he's living as a quote-unquote apostate, which means a mage outside the circle. And yeah, when you get that quest where he says he needs your help to collect supplies so that he and Justice can be free, Justice is this spirit that's 
maybe possessing, maybe inhabiting Anders. We've talked about that in our personal identity. Melded together. <laughs> yeah, they're melded together. We've talked about that a few times, most notably in our personal identity episode. <laughs> and so I thought we were building some kind of potion or spell yeah. to help to help release justice from Anders, maybe build a new body for justice or send justice back to the fade or where spirits live or something like that. There was a separation that was going to happen, right? And Yeah, oh. not that he was going to build a bomb and blow up the Chantry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I did not see the Anders betrayal coming. I was not in a romance with Anders. And we'll talk about how that might change our perceptions of trust and betrayal later on. But I didn't see it coming. I thought he was justifiably upset by the treatment of mages but I didn't think I didn't think he was using me to build a bomb <laughs> I did not see no, that coming I did not okay so a few other characters who prove themselves to be untrustworthy and I, I'm looking mainly at Dragon Age 2 and Dragon Age Inquisition just because I think the examples are bigger mm -hmm. starker examples of betrayal perhaps so the other two I wanted to draw out here in our first run segment is Blackwall so, Kira, did you trust Blackwall in Dragon Age Inquisition? Okay, so once again, this is going to highlight my bad taste in men. Um, <laughs> so, again, in my first run, and okay, to be fair, my my predisposition is just to use the flirt option with everybody because, sure. you know, you want to leave your options open. Um, but doing that <laughs> with Blackwell closes your options pretty quickly because he's so easy. Yeah, he falls so hard. Oh. And so I, I ended up suddenly in a romance with this guy and yeah I trusted him I mean he's supposed he's presented as a gray warden and you know I was like well the gray wardens were really you know who I was playing in Dragon Age Origins so why wouldn't I trust this guy who was helping farmers defeat bandits I'm like right. he seems like an upstanding sort of guy yeah very preoccupied with honor. With honor. And even when you later on get sort of the story about, so when you get into personal conversations with him, he tells you about when he was a young child and how he didn't stand up for justice when he saw these kids torturing a dog or. Right. I think it was a dog. And so, and he's kind of really upset by this. And so I keep thinking, well, yeah, no, that's a mark of a good character. Like he, he was weak as a child, perhaps, but kids, it's difficult for kids to stand up mm -hmm. for justice. So I could understand that that's not a sign of weak character necessarily because he grew. So yeah, I, I thought all of his behaviors and conversations led me to think that he was a trustworthy individual. Yeah, I will say also, I trusted Blackwall. I also accidentally ended up in a romance <laughs> with Blackwall in my very first playthrough. <laughs> So spoiler alert again, Blackwall is only pretending to be a Grey Warden, which you find out later. He is not a Grey Warden. He intended to join the Order, and then circumstances conspired such that he didn't do that, but he just kept pretending. He's not even Blackwall. That's not who he is. He's assumed the identity of a dead Grey Warden, essentially. And then his real identity comes back to bite him later in the game, and I did not see that coming at all. And it's another thing where when I played it through a second time, like there are a lot of places where Blackwall is truthful, but very evasive with what he says. So whether it's Alistair, Loghain, or Stroud that you go and meet, and they tell you about how the evil demon in the third game, Corypheus, is manipulating the Grey Wardens through this thing called the Calling, which manipulates their mind, and it, it kind of seems to coerce them against their will, and... 
you can ask Blackwall, like, is this happening to you? And Blackwall replies with, I do not fear the calling. Which it's is true. true. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of half-truths that he gives. He doesn't really outright lie, but he doesn't really tell us what's going on a lot of the time. And I find that kind of interesting. So yeah, I was blindsided by Blackwall. And I guess the last person and probably the biggest that a lot of people focus on in the in the fandom is Solus from Dragon Age Inquisition, right? So Solus, yeah. who again is operating under kind of an assumed identity. He's pretending to be basically an apostate elf mage, but it turns out he's kind of an elven god sort of thing. <laughs> Um, and that he is responsible for Corypheus being free the orb. and doing what he does. <laughs> he deliberately did it. He deliberately let Corypheus get the orb. <laughs> yes, he deliberately gave Corypheus the orb. Corypheus, again, being the bad demon in Dragon Age Inquisition, he gave Corypheus the item that allows Corypheus to tear holes in the Fade, allowing demons to kind of pour into Thetis. And... Admittedly, Solus didn't entirely want this outcome, but he didn't entirely not want this outcome either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you trust Solus, Kira? I mean, I didn't not trust him, if that makes sense. Okay. So kind of like in a in an agnostic position? Yeah. Like, I, I didn't hate the guy, but I also didn't really care that much for him either. I was sort of just a, eh... He's there. I never took him with me. I, I, he, he kind of, you know, what's interesting now that I'm thinking about it. So one of my favorite parts of the game is when the battle at Haven has ended and you've struggled to get to the evacuees and you end up in the camp and they break out into song and it's all very yes. moving. Yes. And then if you're an elf, which I am. Solus will pull you aside and you get some unique conversations as an elf because he's like, hey, guess what? This this thing is our artifact. This thing that tore a big hole in yeah. the sky? It's elven. Yes. And we can't tell anybody. <laughs> right? Don't let them know. And and I think that kind of set me off where it was sort of, like it was a bit off-putting in the sense that, yeah, you you just you're just not very open. You're not like, why does this need to be a secret? Yeah, right. So I think I just got a my I had my back up against this guy from the beginning in in that sense that right. my choices throughout the game, pretty much regardless of how I'm playing it as a character, is to always deny being the the chosen one. The chosen one, you know, being very clear that no, look, this is this is not Andraste's will. This is like I am just an elf. I'm, you know, this I'm not is, divinely touched. I'm not divinely touched, and so being transparent was something that always seemed really important. And he sort of got my back up in terms of, well, now I want you to lie for me right. and for us, right? Appealing to this, yeah, we're already so frowned upon if they knew that this was our object that was doing this we'd be in trouble and I'm sort of like uh so I never took I really never took him with me when I went anywhere <laughs> unless it was for a quest that he was part of right so yeah I it's not that I didn't trust him but I certainly also 
didn't trust him yeah, at yeah, the yeah. same time, right? So it was a very, it was the first time I played through anyway. That was sort of, I just felt kind of meh about him that right. I didn't like the way he was framing things. So his narrative just didn't stick well with me. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of ignored him for most of the game. I think he tells you that the orb is elven regardless of your own race, but he definitely oh, does? Okay. says it differently if you are an elf. Like he says it's ours and kind of implicates you in right. like... Okay. All but right. he'll tell we'll the cause... Inquisitor that the orb is of elven origin whether you're a human or a dwarf or, or a Kunari gotcha. or whatever. But he it's framed differently if you are an elf. Like this is right. our Okay, secret. that's good to know. I didn't realize that. Because, you know, not playing as <laughs> I will say, though, I had a similar reaction to Solus. And I, I want to add something. So Solus always did seem quite evasive to me in a lot of different ways. He doesn't really fully tell you, like, how he knows everything he knows about the Fade he doesn't seem to have a clear origin. Like Blackwell yep. has a clear, completely made up origin story. <laughs> but Solus doesn't have that. If you prod into his origins, he's very kind of vague about it. Yeah. He, so he doesn't seem to fit with other apostates. And he also isn't clearly a Dalish elf, right? So we have this mage who exists outside of the circle, but also doesn't seem to know a whole lot about Dalish elven lore. And so that's kind of weird. Yeah. And also, I want to add, because of what had happened with Anders, and a little bit because of what had happened with Morrigan, who I don't necessarily think is a huge betrayal, but is a bit of surprise at the end of Origins when she's like, hey, let's make a demon baby to save everybody. Yeah. I was on the lookout for the shady character, shall we say? (laughs) And so I immediately was like, oh, it's Solus. Like, Solus Solus is our shady character. Which means that I was completely suspect of Solus throughout the whole game and Blackwell completely flew under my radar because I was not expecting two betrayals. <laughs> so well played, Bioware. Well, well played. I should have been because Isabella also can betray you in Dragon Age 2. So I should have been on the lookout for two <laughs> betrayals. <Yeah>. But I wasn't. <laughs> so there's one more kind of, well, two more kind of issues of trust that are quite big in the games that I want to draw out before we bring in our philosophical theories. So one of them is Varric. (laughs) Varric is a narrator and a storyteller, as we know. So there's a lot of in-game fiction that he's written that other people refer to. But he is also the narrator for the entirety of Dragon Age 2. Everything we know and everything we play in Dragon Age 2 is a story that Varric is telling Cassandra. And so I want to ask you, do you trust Varric as a narrator in Dragon Age 2? Oh, hell no. (laughs) No, I don't. I mean, the... I laughed so hard when I finished the beginning of Dragon Age 2. And that initial fight scene that you're kind of thrown into at the beginning. And and you're you're so overpowered. It's amazing. it actually confused me a bit at the beginning because when we actually went back, when you when you finish that narrative and you go back to the replaying that bit, I was like, what happened to all my spells? <laughs> <laughs> right? And so that whole scene in retrospect is hilarious. Yes. It's sort of like once you, once you get thrown into Cassandra interrogating Varric, it's sort of like, oh, that's what's going on. 
And I think it just sets up his character so well in terms of how he is yeah. as a person. And it also allows, I think, for some really interesting things you can do when it comes to trying to understand discrepancies between Dragon Age 2 and, and <laughs> Dragon Age Inquisition. So this is my wife's theory about Anders in oh, Dragon okay. Age 2. So she thinks Anders doesn't exist in Dragon Age 2 in reality. Her theory is that Varric made up Anders in Dragon Age 2 to protect Hawk, oh his my best God. buddy. And Hawk's really the one who blew up the Chantry. And Anders is just a smokescreen. So does she think Anders the person exists? Like, because Anders is in, in Dragon origins. Age or in in Origins, yes. So there is an Anders out there, but not. Well, it's not clear if he could be dead at the end right. of Origins, right? Like, it's possible yeah. he died. Um, so ultimately, it would completely allow for canon to be met, and would absolutely be in keeping with Varric's yes. lack of trustworthiness <laughs> as a narrator because the thing is justice and anders together makes a great story right like he provides a wonderful foil against fenris yeah points of conflict yeah you know a sort of way to stick it to the chantry but not mm -hmm. as the narrator so I, I actually love this theory that's an amazing theory and the thing is in dragon age 2 i often play hawk as a blood mage <laughs> yeah so it makes a lot of sense or you know it, so if i'm playing as a blood blood mage it makes a lot of sense when you get to inquisition and all of a sudden hawk's like oh, blood magic is never justified and it's sort of like oh right because it a, a blood mage makes for a so much better story, right? So yeah, yeah. So Varric just made yeah, Hawk a blood Varric mage. Just made up a whole bunch of stuff, which explains a whole bunch of things and allows for these discrepancies. And it's a great story, and and that's yeah. part of it too. Because I was just in my replay of Dragon Age Two just recently, I was so captivated by the story. I mean, you know, it is a good story. It is, I love the story of Dragon Age 2. I, I know that's not story. a popular opinion, but I love it. No, I really love it. And be, well, the fighting is meh and and the the settings are kind of meh cuz it's always yeah, yeah, the yeah. same dungeons and things like that, yeah. but but the story is so story compelling. Is it's so compelling. And it's so It's so good. That and that fits with Varric being a really great storyteller. Yeah. But we also see within Dragon Age 2, he situates himself as someone who just lies all the time, making up things that Hawk does. Yes. You know, and so I, I absolutely do not trust him as a, as, a, as a reliable source of information. Right. But he, yeah. it, what I can trust is that he's going to tell a great story. Yeah. There are kind of two things the way I want to parse Varric is I don't trust him as the narrator. And there are two places where Cassandra calls him out on his bullshit, right? And she's yeah. like, tell me what really happened. And he rewinds the story and you replay the story. Yes. And it's often grimmer and more depressing and less yes. 
heroic than the way Varric was originally telling the story. Yeah. And one of those is right in the opening scene. You open and you're like this super overpowered mage or warrior or whatever you are. <laughs> and you're just trouncing all the darkspawn. And then you kill like a troll with no effort. <laughs> and you're just like, wow, I'm really good at this game. Yeah. And then it rewinds and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> nope. Okay. Because Cassandra says that's not what happened, right? Hawk didn't just destroy everything while fleeing the darkspawn. Siblings um, and then dead. there's the other scene where Varric enters um, oh, his brother's mansion. The mansion with Bartrand. Yeah. And it's he just lost Varric, right? And he's just like mowing one, down. One-shotting everybody. One-shotting and- all the enemies and like calling out these like, I'm coming for you. Like he sounds like, I don't know, like a Western hero <laughs> yeah. from, an, from an old Western or something like that. And then again, she's like, no, that's not what happened. But a lot of the time, Cassandra is kind of carried along with the story. And that leads me to wonder how many other places is Varric just like bullshitting Bullshitting her. her. Bullshitting her. Absolutely. Yep. But so while I don't necessarily trust the truthfulness of Dragon Age 2, I'm not sure we have the full story of what happened because the only story we have is Varric's story. I do actually trust Varric in another vein. And I think you kind of pointed to this. I really do trust that he is incredibly loyal to his friends. Yes. And so when you say that your wife has this theory that he invented Anders to protect Hawk, like, I believe he would do that. Yeah. Did he do that? I don't know. But he definitely would do that if he thought that that was needed. Yeah. Right. Like he will. We've already seen, for example, he lies to Cassandra and said he doesn't know where Hawk is in Dragon Age Inquisition. And then it turns out he super does know. Oh, where he Hawk super is. does know. <laughs> yeah. And he, so he is prepared to do what he has to do to protect the people yeah. that he loves. So if you are a close friend of Varric's, I think you could trust him to be loyal, but you couldn't necessarily trust him to tell the truth, (laughs) which is an interesting thing to talk about when we talk about trust a little bit more. Okay, very last thing before we move on to philosophical theory. And this is something you brought up, I think, Kira. Mm. Do you trust the way the history has been presented to you, particularly in Dragon Age Origins and in Dragon Age 2? It's really interesting because I want to trust the history, right? And the, the way in which you get history is largely through two sources. Mm-hmm. You get history and information through the codexes. So yeah. as you're going around, you're discovering information and you get it through the presentation of testimony from the expert people that you have to rely on. So they're going to give you that exegetical stuff when you have the option to ask questions, you know, who are these people? Who are the Witch of the Wilds, for example? And you yeah. get this answer and you get told stories. And and one of the things about that is that it's never presented ever as something to doubt. You are taking these reports on good faith and assuming that they are things that are true. And, you know, there's so many codex entries. <laughs> like, well, who's actually going to read that stuff for history? And the answer is me. I read everything. <laughs> um, one of my favorite codex entries you ever discover is uh, the one in Inquisition, which is in the library in the basement. And its title is What is Green? <laughs> and it's this guy talking about the color green and it is so clearly written by a a game writer who has taken a philosophy class and just wants to basically drag philosophers (laughs) so it was does he talk about Gru? No, not quite. But uh, but it's it's really a hilarious entry on what is green. And 
it and basically i think he gets pelted with vegetables in this <laughs> people were just too frustrated have to find that but the thing is though in in reading these you get a picture of what the like world world building right that's how world building happens you figure out what the world is like through these sorts of information right that yeah. and the the amount of work that has been put into developing this lore yeah is huge it, yeah. if you think about it the like in dragon age inquisition there is so much but even in Dragon Age Origin and Dragon Age 2, you get that too. Not so much in Dragon yeah. Age 2, I find. Well, you don't leave the city. Yeah, so. it's, it's pretty limited. But that world building is something that you just, you kind of want to believe because right. why else would it be there? But, but, but when you, you, when you play Inquisition and you find out that the way that history has unfolded has not been what we've been told. Even some of the personal experiences that you go through yeah. when it comes to, I'm thinking Trespasser, when you actually do get to go into the ancient Elven, you know, yeah. broken city and stuff, it's, there seems to be evidence to support that that's the case. Yeah. But yet again, <laughs> why, if, if we've been lied to all of this time, why should we suspect that this is also the truth in terms of how things have played we're in out. a post-truth thetis oh no <laughs> so i th i think it's really telling how so much of the way in which the game presents stuff presents it with the hope that you take it uncritically mm -hmm. the reason the plots unfold so successfully the way that they do in terms of the i think our experience of the game is that you take it on good faith that the people who are telling you what history was are telling you the truth and that the codex entries are reliable sources of what yeah. canon is. And then what's so successful, I think, about how the twists happen is that you are sort of caught off guard because you've been building up this vision in your head. And all of a sudden it's this gotcha moment of, haha, you thought you knew what was going on, but it's more complex than that. Yeah. So we call this segment The Gadfly and the Dragon, and it's where we're going to bring in some philosophical theories and ideas on trust and testimony in order to try and help us maybe make sense of some of these things in the game, like Blackwall, Solus, Anders, Varric, and maybe also just history in the game. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about trust first. And I'm looking specifically at some work done by philosopher Annette Baer, who really kind of laid a moral groundwork for trust that a lot of people rely on. And one thing that she noted was that when you trust someone, it automatically makes you vulnerable. You're trusting them to do something, and that puts you in a position of, of vulnerability. And she draws a distinction here between trust and just reliability. So for example, we can rely on Sarah to be obnoxious. At least I found her obnoxious. I can rely on Sarah to be obnoxious. <laughs> but if in a certain scene, Sarah is not obnoxious, but is instead caring or touching, this doesn't betray my trust. Right. So reliance is just kind of coming to expect a predictable pattern. The example that Annette Bayer gives is actually an example of another philosopher who we've talked about, Immanuel Kant. I love this example. Yeah, Kant is a moral philosopher, among other things, but he was also like a really precise person. 
And his doctor told him he needed to take a walk every day for his health. And so he used to take a walk at the exact same time every day through his town. And he always walked the exact same route. And as far as we can tell, he walked roughly at the exact same pace. So people in the town, you made this joke that you could set your clock by when Kant walked by your house because he was so reliable that he always walked by at the same time. So you could check how reliable your clocks were in your house by when Kant walked by your house. <laughs> it's such a beautiful story. <laughs> but it's not you trusting Kant. Like if one day he stayed home because he had a cold or, you know, he twisted his ankle. He hasn't betrayed you. He hasn't betrayed you by not walking by your house at the right time. So this is the difference between trust and reliance. Trust makes you vulnerable. Reliance doesn't. So trust is more than reliance then, it's relationships. And in particular, the person being trusted takes on a responsibility. And the person trusting knowingly makes themselves vulnerable by expecting the trustee, the person being trusted, to fulfill that responsibility. So we end up in this relationship. And Bayer, Annette Bayer, thought that the relationship was really most clearly characterized through things like care and honesty. So that gives us kind of an idea of what trust is in general. But then we've also talked about different ways we could trust. So for example, we might trust Vark to look after us if we're his buddy, but we don't necessarily trust him to tell the truth. And when we bring in issues of truth, we're talking about now um, a different area of philosophy, not necessarily just moral philosophy, but also epistemology, philosophy of knowledge. There's also been a lot of work done on trust and knowledge, and in particular, the idea of testimony as a source of knowledge. So can you trust the word of somebody else to give you knowledge? A lot of this work actually comes originally out of Indian philosophy. There's, there's so much literature on testimony in Indian philosophy, and I'm just going to draw on one Indian philosopher, um, S.K. Saxena. And he kind of distills a lot of what Indian philosophy has thought about testimony. And he's trying to talk to a Western philosophical audience. So if you're not familiar with Indian philosophy, Saxena is a little bit more accessible. And one of the things that Saxena notes is that in Indian philosophy, testimony plays a huge role since it is only through testimony that some of the most important religious and spiritual truths could be shared. And that to some degree, I think this isn't just about religious and spiritual truths, but we could say the same often seems true of history. As we've already seen in the game, it's largely, though maybe not only, through testimony that history is made known to us. And this can be oral testimony. So you talked about like asking somebody in the game, like, who is Andraste and what's her deal? And then they can tell you a, a story about Andraste or like, who is Mithal? And they can tell you a story. Or who is the Witch of the Wilds? Spoiler, they're the same person. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so oral testimony is one way that we often learn about our own and other people's histories. But there's also written testimony. So the codex entries that we find. And there's also what we might call kind of visual testimony. So things like people erecting statues to important figures in their culture, in their history, and kind of leaving those around. So there's testimony from past civilizations and present testimony as well that can try and help us kind of uncover what happened. I say that history is largely through testimony, but not only because we also have geological and archaeological stuff that can help reinforce or challenge the testimony that we have. But we don't necessarily have as much of that in the game. We have some. I mean, there are lots of ways in which people are framed as as exploring history like there are people who yeah. are unearthing 
ancient ruins and who are doing the work of collecting information and who are trying to uncover the past through these means. I'm thinking of like when you go find the, the scroll that tells you what really happened in the elven human conflict. Yeah. To venture's bad, but maybe not as bad as we thought they were. Right. Where it's sort of that there are people who are trying to figure out history and recognizing yeah. that there can be a distinction between what happened and how we're presenting history that, there, you know, that, yeah, because I, I, I think that recognizing the, the power relations that are in play, um, depending yeah. on who you're talking to, you're going to get different accounts of what happened. Yeah. And even when the, and so in particular, when you're thinking about the, the Dalish, you know, their version of history is very much through the lens of the experiences that they've had at the hands of humans. Yeah. But as we then find out, it's not entirely accurate either. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we get this interesting sort of frame of people being really interested in getting history right, but nicely demonstrating, I think, that how history really does operate when it comes to our knowledge of history is so situated within institutional power and the experiences that people want to affirm, right? Yeah. And so I think that is something that is always going to be relevant to be thinking about in terms of yeah. answering that question. What do we know about history? And it's like, oh, well, we always have And to this be applies really not just in the game. Yes, And exactly. I don't think either of us are historians, but many historians that I know and that I've worked with draw a distinction between, quote unquote, what actually happened yes, and, quote unquote, history. Yeah. That there is a way in which history probably doesn't perfectly track your, what actually happened. We know it often doesn't. And so this often then raises the issue of if a lot of what we know about history is through testimony, then how do we judge the trustworthiness of the testimony that we're getting, right? Yeah. So Saxena, in defending testimony as a source of knowledge, which he does, says that he knows testimony can fail. And so obviously we have to be critical of the testimony that we accept. He offers various ways we can try and test this. We can test whether or not testimony corresponds to reality, which, you know, with Anders, we find out it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> he, he isn't um, as honest and trustworthy as we thought he was. But with history, that might be hard to do. It's hard to know if the testimony we're getting from any of the sources corresponds to what actually happened. We can also use what Saxena calls a coherence test. So we can see if the testimony coheres or agrees with what we already believe. And here I'm thinking of like all the codex entries you talked about that many of them do reinforce each other about mm -hmm. what actually happened. And then occasionally we stumble upon a scroll or a preserved elf in, elf in Mithal's temple who's resurrected, who tells us that like, oh, this isn't what actually happened. So there are some things that don't cohere. What do we do with those pieces? And then there's also what Saxena calls a pragmatic test, which is just, is the testimony useful to believe? Does it help you make sense of the world in some way? And these, these different tests, none of them are foolproof. <laughs> All of them can fail. But the idea is that using them can help you be perhaps less gullible with the testimony that you accept. He also says sometimes you can't do these tests at all. 
And in those cases, we often end up judging the character of the person giving the testimony. So we consider whether the person giving the testimony is trustworthy. So here we've brought in an issue of trust. So we can see that we can try and test testimony by looking at how likely it is to be true through these kind of correspondence and coherence and pragmatic tests. Or we can look at testimony by trying to figure out how trustworthy the individual giving it is. And here, Saxena relies on a lot of stuff that's similar to Annette Baer's discussion of trust in terms of honesty and caring. But Kira, you've already raised a problem, which is about power and the power dynamics here. And when we think about that, I want to bring in some work by Miranda Fricker on testimony and trust, who's probably one of the bigger names in this field right now in philosophy. Because Fricker notes what you noted, which is that a lot of the time when we judge the trustworthiness of other people, we are judging based on things that we don't necessarily acknowledge, the ways in which we have social, been socialized into thinking about what trustworthiness and expertise looks like. Yes. And a lot of this socialization has to do with power and privilege. So this socialization can be correct sometimes, or it can be flawed because of certain biases and stereotypes. So for example, we have a lot of fictional stories that exist at the moment that depict young black men as gang members or criminals. We have a lot of fictional stories that depict people from the Middle East as terrorists. And this influences the kind of biases that people who consume these stories have about who is trustworthy. It's also no coincidence that a lot of times when we see somebody who's presented as an expert or knowledgeable or trustworthy, they often tend to be white, they often tend to be men, and they often tend to be like wearing glasses and or lab coats. (laughs) (laughs) And so this influences the way in which we view trust and testimony. And psychologists have found that this is borne out. People are more trustworthy in general of the testimony of white men than they are of the testimony of black women, for example. Even when the white man and the black woman both have the same education and same level of expertise. I mean, this does play out, I think, in interesting ways. One thing that I think does kind of come up in the Dragon Age universe in terms of stereotypes about who sounds trustworthy or who is trustworthy, and I kind of gave it away there, is (laughs) Fricker and others have talked about the way in which people speak as being, you know, speaking very confidently and calmly versus speaking with a lot of emotional distress. Yes. Paradoxically, people in emotional distress, we often give them less trust, even though you know, there's not necessarily any reason to do that. And people who speak calmly and confidently, which I will say Solas and Varak both do eminently well. Eminently well. They often are given more trust. So there's a lot of factors that, and a lot of biases that can influence our, our perceptions of trust. There are things, like I said, people's gender, people's race, socioeconomic status, accents can have a huge impact. It's It's not a coincidence that a lot of quote-unquote intelligent characters are often told to speak in a British, British uh, a Queen's English accent in the U.S. because demographically the United States tends to view people who speak in a British accent as being more intelligent. (laughs) Again, psychologists and sociologists have found this with studies. So the way you speak can also influence whether or not people feel confident placing themselves in a vulnerable position with regards to you. So that's another issue. And then the last thing I want to bring in is this idea from Heidi Graswick of trust and distrust traveling. So what this means is if I distrust 
an institution that you belong to, for example, I may also distrust you because of your association with the institution. Or perhaps an even easier example is if I ask a friend of mine for a referral to a good mechanic, for example, and then I find out the mechanic is not competent, not only have I lost trust in the mechanic, but I've also probably lost trust in my friend's opinion with regards to mechanics. So I distrust the mechanic and I also distrust my friend. Conversely, if the mechanic turns out great, it reinforces my trust in my friend at the same time as it causes me to trust the mechanic. So trust and distrust can travel in this way. There are relations like this. And I will think in my own case, when Bioware betrayed me with Anders in Dragon Age 2. <laughs> your trust traveled, your mistrust My, tra- my distrust traveled into Dragon Age Inquisition that I started that game more trepidatious and on the lookout for who is the untrustworthy character because I no longer trusted Bioware. <laughs> That's interesting. So Graswick doesn't say this has to happen. But she does say that it's quite rational when it does happen, that if people lose trust in, in institutions, they lose trust in the individuals affiliated with those institutions. That, that makes rational sense because what you've learned is perhaps Bioware will put in characters that don't have my, my best interests at heart. Right. <laughs> What's interesting, though, it does raise that question about under what conditions is it reasonable to trust not just characters in the game, but also the game makers themselves. Yeah. Where or under what is uh, at what point do we judge people to be just too trusting? Right. So mm-hmm. why wasn't I more suspicious? Why don't I enter into encounters in these games with more suspicion than I <laughs> You did start out this podcast saying you're a very trusting person. It's true. And I think there's a lot in terms of thinking about virtues and in terms of thinking about character, I think that is interesting to think about when we think about this notion of being trustful, Mm -hmm. not just trustworthy but being trustful and some of the stuff that goes into that and why that is for some reason my default. (laughs) Okay, so we have... The idea of trust, we have the idea of trusting testimony, different ways of testing that, both in terms of whether or not the testimony applies to the world, is the testimony true, and in terms of what can we tell about the character of the person giving the testimony or the institution giving the testimony. We also have noted that when it comes to these character tests, there are potential issues in terms of bias and biased socialization that we may bring to bear and accidentally find somebody trustworthy when they aren't or fail to find somebody trustworthy when they are. And then the last point is this idea of trust and distrust traveling, that finding somebody to be distrustworthy can affect future judgments of trust with regards to people affiliated with that person. Let's move on to our next segment. which is the game as frame. So now that we have kind of all these philosophical tools and we've already brought some of them to bear on the game, but or the games, but let's talk about this a little bit more. So I've already talked about distrust traveling, this idea that because I was duped by Anders, I tend to play Bioware games on the lookout for somebody who's going to betray me. Um, so what Bioware did in earlier games has affected my trust of new characters in later games. But I also want to talk a little bit more about this idea of trust, vulnerability, and betrayal. And in particular, I think this might help explain, for example, your relationship with Solus. So you said it wasn't exactly that you trusted Solus, but you didn't really distrust him either. Yeah. And I think you weren't really in a relationship with Solus. 
No, I wasn't. There was no connection there. Either just to sort of place this within earlier games mechanics, there was no friendship or rivalry. Like it was just <laughs> Right. It was just meh. There was no romance. You didn't do a lot to cultivate any kind of friendship. No. He was just there. He was just there. For example, you could rely on him on the quest where you did bring him along because they were like soulless specific quests, say. You could rely on him to like cast his spells. Yeah, pretty much. And do his thing. But you didn't place yourself in a position of vulnerability with regards to him. No. Whereas when my elf character romanced him, and as we clearly know from the uh -huh. fandom, when many people's elf characters romanced him, there was a vulnerability created and a reliance and a relationship. And that makes the betrayal hit because it becomes a real betrayal. Whereas in your case, Solus, yeah, okay, he let you down. He wasn't so reliable at the end. Mm -hmm. He leaves with this kind of circumstant story and then he shows up in Trespasser and you're like, oh, okay. But it probably didn't hit like a betrayal if you weren't in a relationship. And the first time I played through Inquisition, I didn't have Trespasser. Ah. So I didn't have that knowledge of what was going on. He just left. So it was right. sort of like, eh, whatever. Good riddance. Yeah. <laughs> He's just gone. It's like, Kant didn't walk by my house today. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. He's off doing a thing. Whatever. Let's move on. Because I didn't have the experience of Trespasser to know that it was him. So in later playthroughs, though, I, I had become spoiled for, at that point. So I knew what was coming. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think being in a relationship with a person who does not meet your expectation of trust, it absolutely, I think, makes it punch differently. Like yeah. with, An <laughs> Anders. with Anders and you. Yeah. And I felt um, this with Blackwell too. I because... did, you know, the first playthrough with Inquisition, I felt it was Blackwell too. Like I felt really upset with him. And and I, I think I even felt more upset with him because of the way that when you talk to him in his prison, when he's in jail and you're talking to him and you say to him, you lied to me. And he comes back with, how are you any different for lying about being... Andraste's chosen one and I I wanted to have an option of I have never done that <laughs> <laughs> I am very different from you I am actually so different I mean the, the thing is though this conflates me with the inquisition and I yes. think this goes with right that distrust traveling right yep the inquisition has presented you as Andraste's chosen over and over over and over but often before I was in power right yeah but now that I am in power of this organization, that distrust is going to travel to me no matter how open I've been about it all the time. Or the trust travels to you for people who trusted the Inquisition's message. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Blackwell is never happy with the Inquisition positioning you as Andraste's chosen. He asks you point blank early on in the game if you are Andraste's chosen. He doesn't yeah. believe you really are is the sense yeah. I get. And by the time you hit him in the jail cell, he accuses you of yeah. misleading pretty much all of Thetis. Every, yeah, no matter how open you've been about it. Right, which in your playthrough you didn't do. And there's yeah. another way you may not have done this. If you genuinely believe you are Andraste's chosen and you can play that character, right? You can play yeah. a character who genuinely who believes this. convinced. You wouldn't be misleading people. No, you are committed to it. You think it's true. Yeah, and this is regardless of whether or not it is true. You are attempting yeah. to be honest and credible and open. Yeah, 
And it may be that your testimony fails to be true, but that doesn't mean you aren't trustworthy because you are still telling what you believe to be the truth. So there are two ways in which you may not have misled people, but certainly Liliana, when she says, we're going to present you as the Mm -hmm. chosen one, she seems to be doing it in a very calculated way. Well, everything she does is calculated though. So one, again, this goes, the reliance I have from her is she is always going to do things that increase the power of the inquisition that what's good for the inquisition is what she's going to do regardless of how it's going to be required you can sort of again this is the softening process where it's like you can sort of gradually change her personality with respect to that but yeah i I don't trust her at all no (laughs) (laughs) and i don't trust her because of all of the games where she occurs and she does occur in every single game, you know, yep. the encounters with her, she's always clearly playing somebody. It's like, yes. <laughs> she's not herself ever. She never presents, I think, who she she yeah. is as an individual. It's always the role that she is playing at the time. Yes. And so if we think about what Annette Bear said with regards to trust. So you're right. I think that the trust and the distrust can travel from the Inquisition to you particularly because you are the head of the Inquisition. So if you weren't perhaps so directly related to the organization, maybe it wouldn't travel quite so much if you were like Mm -hmm. some little peon or something. Yeah. But you are the head. Um, (laughs) So it is going to travel to you. And Blackwell can call you out, even though you have never done this yourself. But then if we think about Liliana, and I want to bring Liliana and Varric both up here, and this idea of whether or not they are trustworthy. So just as you said, we can in some ways rely on Liliana to always do what she thinks is is best for the Inquisition or earlier than that, probably what she thinks is best for the Chantry and the Wardens and the world. But I wouldn't necessarily trust her. Like if she thought I was getting in the way, Mm -hmm. she would definitely, you know, have somebody knife me. (laughs) And so if we think about Annette Baer in terms of trustworthiness requiring this relationship where somebody takes responsibility for your vulnerability... I don't necessarily think that that is always happening with Liliana. You can Mm -hmm. soften her and maybe get to that point. But a lot of her focus is not so much honoring the relationship and the vulnerability, but using people as a means to her own end. And when I think about Varric in this too, so we think about the relationship and honoring the vulnerability and the ways Annette Bayer says to do that are in terms of being honest, being caring, being credible. I think Varric is actually quite caring Absolutely. He is not honest. (laughs) Is he honest with you? Not necessarily. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell whether he's honest with Hawk or not, because everything we get about Varric's relationship with Hawk (laughs) until Dragon Age 3 is through Varric. And he presents himself as, you know, a pretty good guy. He is not honest with the Inquisitor or with the Inquisition. No, this is a point about Varric is when you ask him about himself, and his history with even Bianca, it's not at all transparent. It's mm-hmm. all very much sort of throwing up smoke screens. Yes. Although I will say that part of that is because he does not trust the institution you are affiliated with. Yeah. Right. He doesn't trust the Inquisition. And why should he after the way he was brought into it? Although what's interesting, though, is he does actually think that you're sent by Andraste. He does. I think he trusts you and he doesn't trust Cassandra and the organization. And that puts him in a bit of a difficult position. Yeah. 
I mean, he brings you to meet Hawk on the battlements away from everybody else. Yeah. But he doesn't tell Cassandra that he knows where Hawk is. That's right. <laughs> right? So there are ways in which we can see kind of how messy and entangled trust can get when we think about Varric the character. That Cassandra is outraged that Varric didn't tell her the truth. But to be fair to Varric, Cassandra hasn't actually done a whole lot to earn Varric's trust at that She's point. She's been quite violent towards him. <laughs> yes. And I think it's because she wants Varric to trust the organization and the need that the organization has to move fast, which the Inquisition has this need. It is the only thing that seems to be doing anything to try and fix the problems in Thetis at the time. But Varric doesn't trust Cassandra. And because he doesn't trust Cassandra, he has issues trusting the whole organization. He does trust you, and that trust also travels, and he becomes a more trustworthy member of the organization because he trusts you. I find this idea of characters trusting you interesting, in particular in the context of Dragon Age 2. Mm -hmm. And and with the the friendship rivalry mechanic, because even if people hate you... Yeah. They still will trust you. Yes. Except when I want them to. <laughs> right? So in the last playthrough, I romanced Fenris as a mage. Right. This is an example of where distrust doesn't travel. So his position on mages is they are evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yet he is absolutely prepared to trust me, even when I'm siding with the mages. Mm -hmm. So... In there, we have that interesting lack of distrust traveling. But with Anders, here's an example of being on the same side with him. I would always take him on the quests where I was helping the, the rebel mages or helping mages escape or things like that. But then would he bloody trust me to let me know he's blowing up the chantry? No. <laughs> and I think this is this is why with Anders, the, the distrust is for my character is so annoying because it's like look i have shown you at every single turn i got your back mm -hmm. and you betray me like this like i would have helped you blow up the chantry and you <laughs> didn't give me the chance and i so. i want to push back on that but i want to go back to fenris first so there is something that might make sense of this idea of the trust not traveling or the distrust not traveling. So Fenris distrusts mages and has ample reason to do so. <laughs> so many reasons. And then he meets you and he doesn't entirely trust you at first. Like he's kind of like, yes. oh, God, you're a mage. And yes, not God. He probably wouldn't say God. That's but you know true. what I mean? <laughs> yes. You have to work at it. You have to work at it. You have to prove that you're trustworthy. And Fricker has this interesting discussion about how we can, as we grow up, challenge the kind of biases and prejudices that we've been socialized into. So Fenris has a completely understandable prejudice against mages. But of course, we know not all mages are upper class to winter mages, right? <laughs> Fenris hasn't had a lot of encounters with mages that aren't upper class to winter mages. You're probably one of the first that he's encountered. That's right. And so what Fricker says is, as you become an adult, you really need to start questioning and critically examining the kind of rules about trust and trustworthiness that you've been socialized into. And she gives this example of a boy who's been raised in a culture where people teach him that older folks, senior citizens really have nothing of import to say, and you should just basically ignore what they say. Right. <laughs> and then he sits down with his grandfather one day and his grandfather tells him all these insightful and fascinating stories about a war that the grandfather has been through. And the boy learns that, wow, the grandfather did have really interesting and insightful things to say. 
And so Fricker says now the grandfather is a counterexample to what this boy has been socialized into. In the same way you as a mage that is trustworthy are a counterexample to what right. Fenris has learned at the hands of the Tevinter mages, right? Okay, I can actually see that unfolding in the game. I'm thinking yeah. particularly of when you you save an elf slave and I offer her a job. Yeah. And Fenris's immediate response is... Is that you've enslaved her. You've been... What, you're a slave owner now? And you come back with, like, I'm paying her, dude. Yeah. Get a grip. And he's And she like, doesn't have oh. to take the job. She could say no. no. Um, but he does apologize. He yes. says, oh, my mistake. Yes. And so what Fricker says is that when the boy encounters the grandfather, this counterexample will probably not completely overturn his socialization immediately. Like he might think, oh, my grandfather is like a special case of elderly people, but most elderly people you can still ignore. But over time, it starts pushing back and causes what's called a beneficial epistemic friction, which is kind of an awkward philosophical way of saying <laughs> that this challenge, because it doesn't cohere with what he already believes, provides an opportunity to start critically examining and exploring the belief. And it won't happen overnight. Fenris isn't going to love all mages, nor necessarily should he overnight. But he may become more open over time to the possibility that, like, not all mages are assholes. <laughs> Hashtag not all mages. <laughs> right. And I, I guess thinking back about my more recent playthrough, Anders does give some reasons for not telling. Yeah, I think with Anders, things are more complicated. I don't think yeah. it's that Anders doesn't trust you. I think he's in a misguided sense trying to protect yeah. you from the kind of yeah. blowback that he thinks is going to come from gonna this. going to happen. Yes, I think I think that does make sense, but it feels like he's not trusting me. Yeah, and it also, to me, feels like a betrayal that he thought I wasn't trustworthy to keep his secret or I wasn't trustworthy to confide in. And it is definitely an exploitation of my vulnerability that I trusted him when he told me this is what we needed to do. And... I feel betrayed. I feel complicit in something that I didn't fully agree to. So yeah. there's a paternalistic a aspect to Anders, which is a risk that people who are in a trusted position always have. Like if I'm putting my faith in you, I'm trusting that, well, I don't know everything that's going on and you do know everything that's going on. I can trust you to still act in ways that keep my best interests at heart. And it's not clear that Anders actually knows what your best interest is. Yes. <laughs> he thinks he knows. He thinks he's keeping your best interests at heart. But clearly, you don't feel the same way. No, not at all. <laughs> so is he worthy of trust? He thinks he is. But it seems that something has gone awry there, that he isn't respecting the relationship and the vulnerability that you have been placed in in trusting him in this way. That's how I would explain that. I don't think it's that he didn't trust you. I think it's that he misidentified what would be in your best interests. And he mm -hmm. kind of more arrogantly thought he knew what would be in your best interest, <laughs> if that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. But I think from the, from the character's point of view of Hawk, I think reading that as a mistrust makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. I think Hawk could see it as you didn't trust me to help you and you lied to me. Yeah. But I do think Anders tries to explain himself by saying it wasn't that I didn't trust you. It's that I don't want you caught up in all of this. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how from the perspective of the person betrayed, it's knowing that isn't going to make that feeling no. of not being trusted go away. No. And in <laughs> fact, it might confound it. Not only was yeah. I not trusted, but you also just don't understand me if you think that this is how you need to protect me. Yeah. So 
The last thing that we should probably talk about then is the unreliable narrator and unreliable histories. I want to talk about one more thing with Varek, just to kind of drive home the unreliable narrator. One of the things I really love is that when you meet Varek again in the Inquisition, they really drive home how unreliable he is. Yes. So you woke up after the explosion of the conclave and you don't remember how it is that you survived and everybody else is dead. And as you're walking up the hill towards... (laughs) the the first hole in the sky yeah the first tear in the face that they're gonna try and get you to help repair he's like what happened (laughs) yeah so varak is there you get introduced to him i think he's the second or the third person you meet it's cassandra liliana solis and varak are kind of the first four people you meet and so you're walking along with varak and he's like man like you survived and nobody else did and and so how did you survive the conclave blast and you say quite honestly i don't don't remember (laughs) because you don't And Varek tells you that that answer is a mistake. He says you should have lied. (laughs) Not only is Varek untrustworthy, but he's actually really keyed in to the ways in which people in Thetis have been socialized and to what kind of testimony to accept. He's really good at giving that kind of testimony that sounds right, right? This kind of biased, prejudicial thing that we all have, that the confidence of Varek and the ease with which he produces lies that sound reasonable. And I think there are times when you've finished a major quest and you go top with him and he's like, you know, I couldn't write about this in my books because it sounds too No one would believe it. No one would believe it. Yeah. Right. So he knows what people will accept. Yes. He's very good at exploiting the trustworthiness that people place in him because he knows how to sound trustworthy and how to give testimony that sounds acceptable. Which makes my wife's theory about Anders really a good one. (laughs) I love that theory. Do you have anything more to say about the history and the possible unreliableness of the history here? In terms of how the game frames it, I think it's a really interesting approach to making the oh wow moments more punchy Mm -hmm. right you can really feel that epistemic friction (laughs) you feel that so when you are being told actually the elves were already at war before Tevinter you know like yeah so the historical story is that the Tevinter empire kind of came in and destroyed the elven empire and enslaved all the elves and the Dalish have quite uplifting stories about the elven gods and then you're told by this ancient elf, actually, the Tevinters came in and were just picking over the corpse of our empire. And that our gods were horrible dictators that kind of played with elves' lives, basically. Yeah. And and maybe and not I, gods. And I think the reliance on the codexes, the testimony of everybody for what that history was, you need trust in that. And to be taking that at face value in order for those moments to be more punchy, in order for them to really sort of gut you and be like, oh, crap. And sort of what else do I now have to doubt about what I've been told? Yeah. Right. I mean, even just thinking about the religion (laughs) within... Within the games, right? The belief in the maker and Andraste that people have, you know, those are, again grounded in testimonials and how reliable have those been and yeah. i've always played a dalish elves and i've always been very much i i don't believe in the maker as, as yeah. the character so it rubs up against that in terms of a why should i believe any of this 
But then I've been quite prepared throughout the whole game as the player to take that history as given. Yes. And it goes back to kind of this coherence test and this epistemic friction, right? Like, so yeah. this idea that there is a huge, a huge amount of evidence that Tevinter destroyed the Elven Empire. It's everywhere. <laughs> the Codex entries about this are all over the place. We also know that like Tevinter today kind of sucks. And, and the Dalish today are living in very marginalized situations. And the Elves in general are marginalized. And the Tevinter are still enslaving them. Like... So it coheres both with the past codex entries and with present lived experience of a lot of people. Yeah. And so to have these moments where it's not that that history is wrong. It's just that it's more complicated, right? There's there's more going on than that just that the Tevinter came in and, and enslaved the elves, which they did. But there's other stuff that's happening. And perhaps the Dalish stories aren't quite correct. But then again, do we really trust this guy in Mathal's temple who's like this ancient elf who has missed just a huge <laughs> amount of history while he was like frozen, asleep, something? So it's an epistemic friction. And I think that as a Dalish elf, I think you are given the opportunity to kind of push back against this and be like, no, I'm going to believe my stories. I'm going to believe the elven stories that have been passed down to me that are a part of my community and culture rather than believe like this dude. <laughs> But then there's also the question of, and is that the right response? Yeah. Right? Where, what should the lesson be that we take from this? <laughs> I think at a very basic level, maybe one of the lessons that we can take from this is to be more comfortable with and more open to epistemic friction in general. Because psychologists will tell us that actually when you encounter evidence that goes contrary to your belief, you're much more likely to double down on your belief. Yes. It's a cognitive bias that we all have. But if we are actually going to question the traditions we've been socialized into and notice some of the biased and prejudiced stuff that we've been socialized into, we have to back away from that knee-jerk reaction, which doesn't necessarily mean we embrace all contrary evidence, <laughs> but that we acknowledge its existence and kind of let it live alongside the stuff that we've been socialized into and allow that friction, that discomfort to kind of dwell within us. Which I think leads quite naturally to our last segment. Let's do it. A modern girl in Thetis. A modern girl in Thetis. So I've said one thing we can learn here, which is to be more comfortable with what's called epistemic friction, this idea that you encounter beliefs that go contrary to what you have accepted as received knowledge. Anything else that you think we can learn? I think there are a couple of things. One, I think, is that it's quite revealing about aspects of our inclination to trust mm -hmm. and how our inclination to trust is going to be weighed against other aspects of our own personality that may have absolutely nothing to do with the actual trustworthiness of the people we encounter. Because I was always assuming the best of the people in the games because they were my companions. Right. Right. And now, now this goes back again to sort of how this feeds from the game as frame, but I, I wanted the people to like me, yep. right. That I didn't want them to dislike me. I wanted to unlock the benefits that came from those friendships. Right. So I was going to be assuming the best of people, that they were being truthful, that they were telling me to the best of the knowledge things that they thought were true. And I think our inclination to trust in this way is sort of going to be indicative of 
how we relate to others. That if we go into the world just simply assuming that everyone is going to be against us, that we're, we're not going to be able to build accurate worldviews of what is true and what isn't. However, <laughs> it also requires healthy doses of critical evaluation, right? Right. If we go into the world believing everyone has our best interests at heart, that's probably not great either. That's difficult, but that's also something that wasn't available necessarily in the game, right? right? Because in the game, you have to take things as presented when it comes to things like codexes and things like this whereas or even your companions there yeah, are very yeah. few people that you can boot out of your group in especially in inquisition i think you can only boot sarah and blackwell out and you can only boot blackwell out after he betrays you well you can make people hate you enough that they'll leave yes right so through that mechanic you could but it's not like you can say you lied go away <laughs> Yeah, like you can't do that. Or I don't trust you because of vibes. Yeah. Go away. Yes. <laughs> right. Not that I'm saying anyone should base this on vibes, but you can't do that. So you are kind of presented with a group and you can't boot Solus out at all. He has to stay no matter how much you may suspect him. <laughs> yeah. Well, because of his necessity for the yeah. plot, right? Yeah. So there are ways in which the game's don't entirely reflect life in some of those aspects that you are presented with people and you don't have as much say as you may in life about who you're going to rely on. And in certain cases, if you want to unlock certain game things, you have to trust people. You do. But I think the game also gives us opportunities to recognize, and I think we've mentioned this before, the difference between relying on someone mm -hmm. as a sort of pragmatic thing also coupled with some, I think, moral ideas of, you know, being there for someone and so on. Duty like, and obligation. Yeah, that yeah. I can rely on Varric to have my back, to fight with me and, and do the right thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas his unreliability when it comes to testimony, my yeah. lack of trust in his testimony, those are two separate things. Yes. The way in which we trust people can actually be fragmented in terms of yes. where that trust is oriented. And this comes out in the literature too, right? Like I might trust my mechanic with my car, but I may not know them well enough to trust them to like babysit my kid. Exactly. <laughs> so in saying trust and distrust travel, there are limits to this in terms of what we think makes sense in terms of where someone's expertise lies or where they have shown trustworthiness versus where they haven't, right? And I think... I would trust Blackwall to hold have my back too. Like mm -hmm. if you keep him in the group, I think he's going to keep fighting for you. Yeah. I trust him to be competent on the field, but I, I'm not necessarily going to trust a lot of what he says anymore um, or even trust that I know who he is as a person. Now see, what's interesting is I think after the reveal, I trust him more. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that I trust him more because... His lie was bound up in this one thing. Right. So this is a very, I think, interesting difference between Blackwell and Varric. So I actually do trust Blackwell to tell me the truth. One lie. And all the lies he told were to cover that one were big lie. all rooted in that one lie. And once that lie ha was uncovered, everything else sort of dissipated. Right. Whereas Varric just has lies all over the place. He just lies all over the place. And so <laughs> I can't rely on him to tell the truth. But I... I, I still do I love trust him, him so much. I love him so much too. But yeah, so bizarrely enough, with 
Blackwell's betrayal when he then is willing to stand up and tell the truth at expense to himself, yeah, potentially death. Mm-hmm. I actually am more willing to trust him to do the right thing because he did. No, that's fair. So he's he actively demonstrated his trustworthiness and worked against the distrust that was already in place to try and earn your trust. Yeah, because it was just that it was that single moment where he adopted that lie and to protect that lie, he kept lying. But we he kept also trying it seems that he tries to be committed to the truth like when he tells us, yeah, no, I'm not worried about the call. <laughs> Yeah, it's again, he is skirting close to the truth as he can. Yeah, within this framework to protect himself. And then I think with his character growth, you get this sense he he recognizes how this isn't okay, and then is upfront with the life. I think you've pointed to kind of the last thing that I would say. And it's one of the reasons that philosophy has struggled with trust and testimony, particularly as a source of knowledge. So trust in moral philosophy has had a long history, a lot of stuff written, but trust in epistemology and philosophy of knowledge has been relatively new. And there are still philosophers that think this isn't necessarily a great place to get knowledge. And part of that is because it is really, really difficult to trust well and trust wisely, both in terms of earning trust to to show that you are trustworthy, to not accidentally gain trustworthiness where you shouldn't. Like, for example, the Inquisition going around telling everybody, like, you're Andraste's chosen. Everybody can trust you. And you're going, no, no, but no one's listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's hard to trust well. It's hard to demonstrate trustworthiness. There are so many points where this can fail. And then when we add in things like biases and prejudice, there are even more points where we trust when we shouldn't or don't trust when we should. And yet Despite all of that, I think we can learn things from testimony. I think we do learn things about even Varric's character from his testimony. Mm -hmm. When he tells you, you should lie, it's more believable. I am learning something about Varric (laughs) as a person. And so I do think that knowledge can be gained through testimony, but it is really fraught and really difficult. And a lot of missteps can be made. Trust is super complicated. and We all need to do more work thinking about it. Yeah. And I think the game does a nice job in raising these issues that when you're aware of them, you can see how they're playing out and how we haven't really talked about trust in institutions and how that happens. And just thinking about when the government is asking for trust that they're doing the right thing and we can be like, well, (laughs) should we? Yeah. In the face of evidence that perhaps institutions around us are not making choices that are in our interest. I'm just thinking of like pandemic COVID responses on the part of government. Climate change responses are very slow. Or climate change where the evidence is so clear, yet institutional policies and decisions seem to go against the evidence, right? But yet that message of, well, trust us as, as an authority. Yes. Right. That one of the things I like about this game is how it, it, pushes back against the idea that just because someone is thought to be an authority, they're going to be trustworthy. Just because they have the power. Just because they have the power. This is something that, again, we see in the philosophical literature, going all the way back to early Indian philosophy, is the idea that trustworthiness has to be earned. You shouldn't just get it because you have the power. You have to demonstrate that you are trustworthy in very much the way you say that Blackwall did for you by finally standing up and telling the truth and admitting what had happened. Yeah. 
And so trustworthiness demands that you show honesty, that you show your credibility, that you do know what you're talking about, that you show that you do care about the person and that you will take their vulnerability seriously. And institutions often demand trustworthiness, not just governments, but institutions and organizations in general. So I'm also thinking about loyalty and trust that employers may demand from employees, for example. Yes. Without necessarily demonstrating that they do have your best interests at heart. In other words, I guess this is kind of the last thing we didn't necessarily talk about. Relations of trust often take time because it takes a while to enter into it. You can trust somebody a little bit. And then if they demonstrate that they are caring for you, you put more trust into them, right, over time. And this, I think, is kind of what happened with you and Anders to the point where when he betrayed you, it really, really (laughs) hurt. (laughs) But also Blackwall kind of earns your trust over time. And then when the betrayal happens, he works to repair the betrayal. In a way, maybe Anders didn't as much (laughs) or as successfully. (laughs) And so this, yeah, it's it's a time commitment. It's an investment. It has to be trustworthiness has to be maintained over and over and over again. I think we get to see this, especially in Dragon Age 2, if any of that game is actually correct and not just Bark (laughs) bullshitting us, because it's 10 years. So we see 10 years of, for example, Fenris interacting with you and learning to trust you more and more and more, despite the misgivings he has at the start. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Andraste's Gadfly. A pleasure, as always. We will be back sometime in the future talking about more philosophy and Dragon Age. But until then, everybody enjoy your games. Kira, enjoy your next playthrough. Thank you. You too. Oh, I will. I'm thinking of going back to Dragon Age 2 now after this conversation. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.